There are times when we come to reading God's Word that we would do well to stop and think. And one of the times we should most often stop and think about God's Word is when it presents something to us that is, in the flow of the thought, different than we might expect. I think this is one of the best examples that I have come across in some time. I'm talking of Psalm 130. Now, Psalm 130 is a part of what we call the Songs of Ascent. They were sung by travelers going up to Jerusalem for a great feast. And one can imagine these pilgrims coming to the city of Jerusalem for worshiping God together in companies. And as they ascended, they would sing these psalms. They were songs of ascent as they marched together toward Jerusalem. This also, Psalm 130, is one of about half a dozen or maybe seven what we would call penitential psalms, dealing with penitence, dealing with confession, dealing with brokenness of soul before God. So Psalm 130, already we can understand a little bit about its context. It's intended to be sung by those going up for, to Jerusalem for worship, and it's intended to reflect one's confessional posture toward God. So far, so good. Until we get to verse number 4. As the psalmist has said that he's out in the depths, he's crying to God, he's asking God to hear his voice, he's reflecting on the fact that, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, Lord, who's going to stand? Who shall stand in light of your searching judgment? If that were to be the case, he says in verse 4, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Now, that idea there, that, it, it's the idea of so that, the purpose. There is forgiveness with you, God, so that, for the purpose that, you may be feared. Now, does it immediately strike you that those two things are related? God's forgiveness and us fearing him? I'll tell you what I would have expected. But there is justice with you so that you may be feared. Does that make a little more sense to you? Surely, if we said, God, you are a God of holiness, you are a God of justice, you are a God who judges sin so that you may be feared. You'd say, okay, I get that. The fear of the Lord is to recognize that God sends sinners to hell. I fear that. I fear him. So therefore, there is justice with you. There is judgment with you. There is punishment with you so that you may be feared. Okay, I think we can understand that idea, right? But the other idea, there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared? Well, I would have expected him to say, so that you may be loved so that you may be worshipped. No. He says, there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. We're going to put our thinking caps on tonight. 
And try to understand the connection between those two ideas, the forgiveness that is with God and His purpose in that forgiveness, that you will fear Him. That your relationship toward Him will be rooted in the ground of His forgiveness for you. And what I want to propose to you tonight is that at the end of this message, I hope that you will be leaving this service tonight with a new appreciation not only for God's forgiveness, but for the reality in which it can and should change your life in how you relate to God today and every day. The title of our message tonight is Forgiveness and Fear. Forgiveness and Fear. What seem to be contradictory or at least paradoxical connection, actually, I think we'll find tonight, has the closest and most logical connection. Forgiveness and fear. Now, we're going to break our message tonight into three parts, as we often do. And we're just going to have very, three very simple thoughts coming directly from the text here in Psalm 130. The first thing we are going to ask is what the psalmist is feeling. What is he feeling as he approaches God here in Psalm 130? Secondly, what does he know about God? What does he bring to remembrance about God's character? And then thirdly, we're going to look at how he responds. How this psalmist responds in light of what he knows about God and his character. What he felt, what he knew and how he responds. Let's start, first of all, with what he felt. Will you look with me? We're going to take these right from the text, and we're trying to allow the text to convince us of this connection that is drawn here in God's inspired word. Let's start with verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open to Psalm 130 in whatever form you have those Bibles this evening, so that we can make sure that we're all grounded in the inspired text itself. Psalm 130 and verse 1 begins as follows. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications, my supplicating prayer, my requests. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? What is this psalmist feeling when he is saying these words? Well, start with the very beginning. He says, out of the depths. You know the word depressed. It literally means to depress, is to press down. And any of you who have been in a depression have felt the weightiness, the burden that is pressing down on you in a moment. And whether that is what we would call clinical, or whether that would be simply a kind of despair or agony of soul, you can identify with what the psalmist says when he says, I am low, I am in the depths. Now we use uh, phrases like the depths of despair. And I think we just all know instinctually what he's talking about here, what he's feeling. He is feeling utterly discouraged. He's feeling utterly cast down. As if you were going to the depth of a swimming pool. Have you ever noticed as you go down 
to the depths of a swimming pool. You feel the pressure of that water. I feel it in my eardrums. And your eardrums feel like they're about to explode. And your, your lungs begin to start screaming for air. Of course, it's even truer if you were to go down into the depths of the ocean, uh, like that unfortunate uh, voyage, uh, that, that uh, submersible, uh, the Titan that we all read about. The, the pressure of the water is met by the cold, is met by the complete darkness that is surrounding you. It, 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 is, in, it is apparently a, just an incredibly eerie experience to go to the depths of the sea. You can imagine this psalmist feeling dark, feeling cold, feeling pressured and burdened, and like everything in life is just pushing down on him. Have you been there? We probably all have been in various experiences and in various times. But I want you to notice something here. It does not seem to be that it's primarily the circumstances of life that are depressing him, that are pushing him down and weighing him down. What is it? Well, notice in verse 2, he is crying out to God and he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Notice he's not even saying to God, God, answer my prayer. He's just saying, God, listen to me. Have you ever felt like that when you're praying? God, I, I don't even need assurance that you're going to do what I say. I just need assurance that my, my words aren't bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back to me, and you don't even hear. Again, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that discouragement of soul that it feels like you don't even have the opportunity, you don't even have the, 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 the acuity to pray? This is where he is. God, just hear me. I'm crying out to you. I'm in the depths. I'm pressed down. Hear me. Okay, have we been there? Well, notice then what he says next. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Now, this leads me to believe that the psalmist is not merely crying out about difficult circumstances. He's crying out about the cause of why he feels in the depths. And what are those? His iniquities. He is crying about, out about his own sin. Lord, why am I so in the depths? Why am I asking you to hear me? He's saying, Lord, because if you were going to mark all my iniquities... I could never stand up under that kind of judgment. I could never approach you in any kind of way other than complete despair. It really seems here that he is crying out to God in complete depression of soul because of his own sin. Have you been there? I have. There have been times in my life where I've seen the sin that I have. And it just has almost felt like I've needed to, to fight for God's forgiveness. I've needed to go to the word of God and claim because I don't feel it. I feel heavy. I feel burdened. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. Have you been there? To say, God, I can't even lift up my head in front of you. Now, notice this feeling that he has in, that comes out in verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark Iniquities. Now that word mark there is actually a Hebrew word that's repeated later in this chapter. It's the same word. It's the word mark that later in verse 6 is translated watch. Watch. They that watch for the morning. 
So there's a sense in this word in which David is saying, God, if you were really, really watching for every one of my sins. Well, let's pause there for a moment. God does watch. He does see every single sin that we commit. So that's not the extent of what the psalmist is saying here. The extent of what the psalmist is saying is how this very common Hebrew word is used in other places in the psalm. The psalmist uses this same word, for example, in Psalm 16 and verse 1, when he says, Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, for in thee do I put my trust. Same word in Psalm 121 and verse 7, when the psalmist says, The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. Do you get in a sense of the idea now? He's not just saying, God, you're watching. He knows God watches. He knows God sees every one of his sins. He's saying, God, if you mark sins to store them up and hold on to them, if you stored up all of the sins that you see and you, get, you, 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 um, you put them in a rock, you engraved them in a rock so that they were stored fully and finally before you, he says, oh Lord, who shall stand? Who can bear up under that? And I was thinking about this. I was thinking as a young parent, the picture that if I were to follow my children around every moment of every day, watching them, not to help them, but to be a fault finder for them, can you imagine what it would do to their spirit? Oh, I see, son. You wet the bed again last night, huh? You follow them around? Oh, that was careless when you dropped your clothes on the floor. They go in the dirty pile. Oh, look at son, you're eating cereal and you spilled some down your clean shirt. What were you thinking? And on and on throughout the day, one after another, one after another, I not only see everything that my child is doing, but I hold it over their heads. I'm preserving every one of their mistakes, every one of their difficulties. For any of you who were athletes or played on a sports team, you know how discouraging it can be when it feels like your coach is just out to get you, is seeing every single thing you do and justifying bringing you to the bench. I remember when I was playing high school basketball, I was an absolute coward. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you, I was a complete coward. Uh, they would tell me so many times, when a guy, when you're in help side in the lane and someone beats his guy and comes in the lane, you have to stand in and let him run into you and fall over and you take a charge. They're going to call an offensive foul and they're going to go down the other end. I was 175 pounds dripping wet. I was a scrawny kid. You think I wanted to let some guy run full speed straight into my chest and run me over? Not a chance. And so you know what I would do? I would step in and I would be there and I would do the ole, ole, ole. And I would just step right out of the way and I would jump and I would swing my arm and he would score a layup, and I'd look over at the bench, and I'd, the coach was immediately pointing to my replacement. Get in there. And it was like, I just my shoulders would just be like, oh, there it is again. You can just imagine that feeling, right, of always feeling like there is this box, there is this stored-up treasure house of all your failings and all your mistakes. And if God held it like that, you and I would never be able to stand in front of him. We would never be able to approach him. Think of, of uh, an employee who has a boss with an employee personnel file. 
And every single one of your mistakes is stored up in that personnel file. And when it comes to bonus time, you just know, well, I'm not getting a bonus. Why? Because I've got a whole personnel file that every single thing I've done is there and it's forever. It's in my personnel file for good. You'd say, I'm out of here. I'm done with this job. That's not the place where any of us wants to be. What he felt was extremely low and discouraged. And here's the point that I want to make. There is a wonderful, wonderful gospel reality to being in this kind of position. In fact, this is what the old Puritans realized when they recognized the purposes, one of the purposes of the law. The law of God is perfect. It converts the soul. How does the law of God convert the soul? Because the law of God is held up in, in, in our Bibles as the moral will of God at which the sinner, myself, looks at it and says, I'm doomed. I cannot keep that law. I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. Perhaps you were converted because you came to that position in your life where you said, I can never follow God's will for myself unless I have the work of Jesus on my behalf. This is a kind of failure. But you know, friends, this does not even mean that this kind of despair or discouragement leaves when we become a Christian. Think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 when realizing that he has found a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my, of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! How many times have you as a Christian, when you have fallen, once again in that same besetting sin, come to that place of crying out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, O wretched woman that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And all the while you have the accuser of the brethren in your right ear saying, you know who's not going to deliver you? God's not going to. Are you sure he loves you? Are you, are, are you sure he's going to forgive you? How, how do you know that you're really a Christian? How do you know that you have the forgiveness of sins? And all the while, the devil is using your failure to jump on your shoulders and push you deeper into the despair of the depths of a black night, of a black sea. This is what this psalmist felt. And I think all of us can identify with it. Perhaps you, even tonight, are identifying it with it, with what you're feeling now. A failure, a sense of complete failure, leading to utter depression and despair. But that's why we need to see what's second here. Not just what this psalmist felt, but what he knew. Look at verse 4. Verse 3, he says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. Like, you don't actually. If you did, if you did preserve up all my iniquities like this, who could stand before you? But then he says, but now I'm teaching myself. Now I'm preaching to myself what I know about God. By the way, friends, when you are feeling despairing, when you are feeling depressed, you must remind yourself who God is. The way out of spiritual discouragement and despondency is by reminding yourself of the unchanging character of God. Let this be a lesson 
to us in our own darkness. Notice what he says. But there is forgiveness with thee. How does he comfort himself in despair? There is forgiveness with thee. I want to bring out three aspects tonight of God's forgiveness that we see here and elsewhere that David would have known and that God commits that you can know as well. There is forgiveness with thee. First of all, notice the action of God's forgiveness. Do you remember what the psalmist has just said? If you, Lord, should treasure up, if you should preserve, if you should keep, if you should hold on to my iniquities, who shall stand? But, he's saying, you don't do that. You don't treasure them up. You don't hold on to them. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is literally God sending away your sin. Sending it away. Listen to what Psalm 103 says. In verse 10, the psalmist says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He sent them away. How far? As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? It is eternally far. You cannot count how far the east is from the west. It is just the logical opposite of one another. And so in that same way, God is saying, He sends our sins, the things we are guilty of, the things that we are ashamed of, the things that our knowledge of them push us down in remorse and regret and shame. He says, I have sent them away. I have sent them away eternally far from you. Reflect on that. Reflect on that with the sin that shames you most, of which you have felt the most guilty in your entire life. God is not storing up that sin. He is not treasuring it. He is not preserving it. If you have forgiveness in him, he has sent it as far away as the east is from the west. Listen to what the commentator boy says. He says, you may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you if you have wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will, and that one is God. Write down where you can see and reflect on it often. Our God is a forgiving God. He will send away your sin as far as the east is from the west. Spurgeon recounts a time when Martin Luther was in great distress of soul absolute discouragement of soul. And he was comforted by one who said to him, Dost thou not believe thy creed? Yes, replied Luther, I believe the creed. Well then, rejoined the other, one article in it is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And he recounts how how Luther was greatly comforted in that moment simply because that man brought before the character of who God is. Do you believe this? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? And so I ask you tonight, friend, do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? For your worst and most shameful and darkest moments that no one else has seen or perhaps everyone has seen, do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? 
The God who sends your sins away as far as the east is from the west. Not only is his action in sending away our sin, notice also his forgiveness is in a particular amount. In a particular amount. What does scripture say about the extent or the amount of God's forgiveness? Notice what verse 7 says here in, in Psalm 130. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is what? Plenteous redemption. Have you ever thought of, of the word plenty? It's such a wonderful word. It, it would be like if your child came to you and said, and, and said Mommy, I'm a little bit nervous about, about how much we have in the bank. I, I don't know whether you're going to be able to provide. Do we have enough? And you were just able to say, we have plenty. Or if, or if your son were to come to you and say, is there, is there enough food for tomorrow? And you say, son, in the pantry, there's, there's plenty. What are you saying? Don't worry about it. Because there's more than enough. It's never going to run out. You don't have to worry about that. Now think about what God is saying to you when he says, I have plenty of redemption. I have plenty of mercy. You say, but God, really for as bad as that mistake was? Oh yeah, I have plenty. Oh, oh you mean for even what humiliated me in front of the ones I love? Yeah, yeah, I have plenty for that one too. Listen to what Isaiah 55 and verse 7 says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It's not like God comes to your sin, your worst sin, your worst mistakes and says, I'm going to have to stretch a little bit to cover this one. The word abundantly pardoned means there's more than enough. It's above and beyond. God looks at your worst moment, your greatest failure, and says, there's plenty. Don't worry about that. There is abundant forgiveness with me. The very, very worst of sins. That's why Isaiah 55 says, are you wicked? Well, don't worry whether God's got enough forgiveness. The only question is whether you'll forsake your sin and return to him. He's got plenty. Don't worry about him. Is that the God that you know? Do you know the extent of the pardon that he has available to you? Friend, not only do we see his action of forgiveness, not only do we see his amount of forgiveness, but we see biblically his attitude of forgiveness. I love this. I love the idea that Psalm 86 expresses. He says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. You probably have all experienced sinning against someone and hurting them and wounding their spirit. And you come to them and you say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? And they just say, I am not ready. I'm sorry, I want to, but I'm not ready. Maybe you've been in that position. You said, I'm sorry, I'm not ready to forgive like that. And then now imagine that God is never there. Never, not once. Not one moment do you come to God for the forgiveness of your sins, and he puts a stiff arm on you and says, why don't we do a little testing period to see if you're going to do it again? Why don't we wait to see if you really mean it this time? No. 
What is the character of God? Psalm 86 says, he is ready to forgive. Period. End of story. He is ready to forgive. In fact, I picture God to be almost on his tiptoes when we sin, leaning toward us and saying, okay, you blundered really badly there, didn't you? You really made a mess of things. You've fallen for the hundredth time in that area in the last month. Okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. You see, the picture is like that prodigal son. Like Jesus' story in Luke chapter 15, when that prodigal, it's really not a prodigal father, as I've said before. It's a prodigal, I'm sorry, a prodigal son. It's a prodigal father. Prodigal means just prodigious, overwhelming, abundant, superabundant. The prodigal son was the one who was abundant in sins, but really the story is about a prodigal father who was over, over abundant in mercy. And what does Jesus tell in that story? That this father is looking for him. He sees him coming a long way off, and he takes off running. He is ready to forgive. He is ready to embrace that boy as dirty as he is, and shower him with kisses, and shower him with love, and say, welcome home, my son. Is that your view of God? That the worst sin you committed last week, God was leaning forward saying, when are you going to come back and repent for that? You're going to find me more than halfway. You're going to find me running to you to wrap my arms around you and to let you know that I still love you every bit as much after your worst failure than I did before. That's our God. Why? Because as God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord God is merciful and gracious. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth. He is keeping mercy for thousands, and he is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who his character is. And this is what the psalmist knew about God. It was the covenant-keeping God that he was aware of. But what I want to just briefly touch on is what you know about God. Because you know more about this covenant-keeping God in a certain sense than even the psalmist did. You know about a covenant-keeping God whose forgiveness of you is rooted in the perfect sacrifice of his Son, Friend, you want to understand the amount, the abundance of God's forgiveness? Listen to 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney standing before the judge. And what is that defense attorney doing? He is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation. He is the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, there is the abundance in the mercy and forgiveness of God that it covers. It could cover the sins of every single human being who has ever lived, and every single one of them. That's how much forgiveness there is with God. That is the propitiation. That is the abundance of Christ's sacrifice. For the world. Now, go back just a couple verses from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 to 1 John 1 and verse 8. It's the passage I quote every time we come to communion, and I do it intentionally. Listen to these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you hear those two words about God? He is faithful and he is just. He is faithful because there is an abundance of provision and pardon in his very character. But he is just to forgive us our sins. You say, why is God just to forgive us our sins? I'll tell you. Because John tells us that Jesus' sins cover the entire world. That I'm sorry, Jesus' propitiation is sufficient to cover the sins of all the world. His bank account of sacrifice for the world is superabundant. And therefore, God must forgive to be just. Let me try to explain it to you like this. I want you to imagine that you know Bill Gates. And Bill Gates has written you a check for a particular expense that you took on in his account. And as you have that check from Bill Gates, you come and present it to your local bank. And your local bank looks at it, and they say, no, we will not cash this check. We will not deposit this check. You would look at your bank and you say, what do you mean? Don't you think Bill Gates is good enough for it? They say, well, we're not sure. But we won't cash this amount, even if he is good for it. Do you know what you would say to that bank? That's not just. That's not right. There's enough in the account. Give me my money. Give me what has been promised to me. And that's the exact same reason that God is just to forgive us our sins. Because when we confess our sins, it is as if, as if we are coming with a check written by Jesus Christ himself. He has paid for that sin. He has suffered for that sin. He has received the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God on behalf of that particular sin. And for God to look at that check signed by his son, Jesus Christ, and refuse to cash it for you would be unjust. It would be unfaithful. And it would ultimately be untrue to the sacrifice of his son himself. Friends, every time you come to God by the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your most disgraceful sin, you are coming with a check written by Jesus Christ, signed by Jesus Christ himself. You have a propitiation for your sins. And you can come with complete boldness to God and say, this has been signed by your son, and so I claim the promise of forgiveness. That's what God did for you in Christ. He reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Do you know that kind of forgiveness that is available to you that is yours in the gospel when your trust is in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that this psalmist said there is forgiveness with thee? There is abundant forgiveness. There is the action of forgiveness to send away and there is the attitude of forgiveness in which God is ready to forgive all the time. I think I would be remiss if I didn't pause here, friends, and just turn the mirror around on us for a moment. Do you know that the forgiving nature of God is the same nature that he expects in his people? You, 
Do you know that's how he calls on you to forgive the people who have wounded you the most deeply? In, in what particular action? By sending away, by sending away the guilt of the person who has come to you for forgiveness. By recognizing the abundance of the provision of forgiveness that God has granted you in Christ and being equally that generous, equally that overabundant in mercy and in the same way having the attitude that is ready to forgive. That even before someone comes to confess their sin to you, it's like you're on your toes ready to bestow a gracious forgiveness, a complete sending away, never to bring it up again, never to hold it over their heads. Husbands and wives, I'm convinced if you want to have a great marriage, you need to know forgiveness above all other things because there is not another human being on earth who sins against you more than your spouse. And there is not another person on earth for whom you sin more than in direct relationship to your spouse. If you do not know this kind of forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that is willing over and over to again say yes, there is abundance of mercy to forgive that. Yes, I am ready to forgive even before she asks, even before he asks. We're not going to know the kind of love and unity in our marriages that God intends. Do you forgive like this? Are you ready to forgive like this? And ultimately then, if you are the one who has experienced God's forgiveness, this kind of forgiveness, I think now you're in the position to understand what the psalmist means when he says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Now, I'm not going to explain what I think this fear is yet. I'm going to explain it by looking at the context, because I think the context is going to make it clear. Three areas, I think, that this man responds. That's our third point, how he responds. Three things that I think explain what this fear is that he's talking about. First of all, look at how he responds toward God. In light of the forgiveness that he knows of th that from God, notice what, how he responds. He says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And then now notice what he says. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. Those people who are looking for the daylight to arise. Those sentinels out on a wall on a deserted city. They're waiting for the morning. They're looking for signs of the dawn. And the psalmist says, God, I'm waiting for you like that. What does he mean? He means that his soul is moving toward God, not away from God. You see that? I'm waiting for the Lord, and I'm not just sitting around checking my watch. I'm waiting for the Lord, and I'm hoping in the Lord. I know that God is going to come through. I know that I'm going to experience Him. Before recognizing God's forgiveness, He's in the depths. He's depressed. He's discouraged. And now He reminds Himself of this biblical truth. And now He's on His tiptoes. He's leaning forward. He's saying, God, I'm waiting. God, I'm trusting. God, I'm hoping. Why? Because he knows what God's character is. He knows God's forgiveness is assured. And so he is looking forward with confident expectation. 
You see, we just need to flip around our idea of what fear is, what truly the fear of the Lord is. You and I both know a fear, whether it's toward God or toward another human being, that shrinks back. We're scared, and so we move away. But this kind of fear, this kind of approach toward God, is the fear that moves toward. You see the difference? It's the fear that approaches God, hopefully, expectantly, patiently, because we know that his forgiveness is assured. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, none fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Think about the wisdom of that. None fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. You see the difference? The difference is between when you're about to get punished for something as a child, you were moving away from your dad. You were moving away from the object that would be producing discipline in you. That's the fear of dread. But what Spurgeon is saying is that the fear that is toward God in recognition of his forgiveness is the fear of a son or a daughter that knows they have done something wrong and yet because they sense the, 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 the breach in relationship, they are running toward their mom and dad. They are running with open arms to say, Mom and dad, I'm sorry. Show me you love me still. They run toward, not away. He goes to say, if the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear him. If all were under apprehension of his deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing him. It is grace which leads the way to a holy regard of God and a fear of grieving him. You need one more example? How about the prodigal son? Did the prodigal son move back toward his father out of a dread of punishment? Or did he move toward him out of a confident expectation that even if it meant becoming a servant, he would be greeted and loved by his father? It was moving toward his father that was the expression of his appropriate kind of reverence and fear. Toward God, he is moving toward him. Notice, secondly, toward himself. Toward himself. What is the posture of the psalmist? The response of the psalmist toward himself. Before it's saying, God, I'm crying. I'm listen, listen up. Are you even hearing me? Now what is it? He has no words to say to himself. He has no focus on his own, if you will, guilt and shame. Do you know I take a very important lesson from this? What the devil wants to keep you in, in your sin, is despair. He wants to keep you in regret. He wants to keep you in remorse, just like he kept Judas there. We talked about Judas Iscariot and his betrayal this morning. And I was reminded, as I was studying for this message, of Matthew chapter 27. And it says of him that Judas brought the 30 pieces of silver to the priests. And it says that he repented himself. He repented himself. He says, I'm done with this. I've con I, I, I have done this. I've betrayed the innocent blood. And what did the high priests and elders say? They, say? they said, what is that to us? See out of that. It doesn't matter to us. And it says of Judas, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. 
His regret, his remorse, his repentance was nothing more than looking inward and finding no relief. Friends, when you sin, stop looking inward. Stop looking at your own guilt. Stop looking at your own shame. It is the work of the accuser of the brethren in you. What is the word of God to you? Look away from yourself. Go to the one who has plenteous forgiveness and say, God, I'm claiming the forgiveness that is mine in Jesus Christ. And then realize that if God has cast away your sin as far as the east is from the west, you can too. You can find complete forgiveness with him that allows you to look away from your own failures and look completely and confidently on him. Once this man recognized, this psalmist recognized the forgiveness that was available in God, this kind of holy fear produced in him a looking toward God, a waiting on him, a hoping on him, and a complete looking away from himself and his own misery. Is that how you relate to your sin? When you commit, when you fail, when you stumble once again? One more thing. How did he respond toward others? Will you notice with me in verse 7? He's not just done now with talking about his own expectation from God. In verse 7 he says, Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. He's saying, I've experienced that plenty of redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Friends, there is no one who can testify to the grace of God more compellingly than one who's experienced it himself, who's experienced it herself. And friend, if you want to be a witness for Jesus Christ, it's going to start here with being utterly confident of the forgiveness of sins that you have in Jesus Christ and overflowing in a desire that others would experience that exact same kind of forgiveness, that exact same kind of assurance that you have. You see, friends, that's the kind of fear of God that you should have. Not the fear of God that because of your sin is moving away from him. The kind of fear of God that says, Father, I know who you are. And so even though I've messed up, I'm coming towards you because you'll forgive. And God, I'm not looking. The fear of God that says, I'm not looking at my own guilt and my own shame and my own failures because your son died for those. And so I'm looking at him. That's the fear of God. And then the fear of God, the reverence for him that looks around at a guilty world around you, neighbors and friends and family and coworkers who don't know his forgiveness and say, God, help me so that they can know your forgiveness as well. That they can have that kind of confident assurance. You see, the psalmist is totally logical here. There is forgiveness with thee. Oh, yes, there is. There's plenty of forgiveness with God. And because of that, you and I should have that kind of fear of God, that kind of approach toward him. Let me pause and ask you as we close tonight, what do you know about God? What do you know about forgiveness? My prayer for you tonight is that you would stand confidently without guilt, without shame, without this kind of cringing fear. But that tonight, as you experience the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ afresh, you would walk out of here 
with the right kind of fear.